looking, throwing in the end zone. Montana, touchdown, John Taylor. Young to the air, young to Jerry Rice. Touchdown, San Francisco. Young stumbles on the way back and fires up the middle. Pass is caught by Owens. Hello and welcome to the 49ers Plus Podcast. I'm your host, Al Moriello, and this is your source for the most objective 49ers discussion and analysis, plus timely and entertaining sports and pop culture topics. And today we're going to be talking about pro football focus ratings and snap counts from the recent game against the Arizona Cardinals, how missed tackles are still an issue for the 49ers. We're going to be talking injuries throughout the team, but specifically on the D-line. Why immediate talking head Doug Gottlieb thinks there's 15 quarterbacks that could be as good or better with San Francisco than Brock Purdy. And then we are going to jump into the 49ers Ravens Christmas night game with a full breakdown. In the plus section, we're going to be talking about why video games such as Spider-Man 2 cost so much money to make, but they still turn a profit. I'm going to give a review on the book Star Wars Dark Disciple by Christy Golden, and we will conclude by making Week 16 NFL picks. But like always, it starts with the Niners, so let's get right into it. Let's talk Niners! All right, let's go over who Pro Football Focus thought were the Highest and lowest graded 49ers from their win over Arizona. On offense, five highest graded. Right guard John Feliciano, 95.3. Brock Purdy, 86.5. Trent Williams, 84.9. Right tackle Colton McKivitz, 79.7. And Debo at 78.5. The lowest rated, three lowest rated, center Jake Brendel, 55.9. Receiver Ronnie Bell, 55.4, although only on eight snaps. And tight end Braden Willis, 48.5, only six snaps. Top five rated on defense, Charvarius Warden is two interceptions, garnered a 90.8, Fred Warner 85.8, Nick Bosa 84.8, cornerback Diamador Lenore 84, and nickelback Isaiah Oliver 77.1, 18 snaps that he played. Three lowest rated, linebacker D. Winters at 29, only 12 snaps. Then two defensive tackles, T.Y. McGill at 28.1, and Javon Kinlaw at 25.7. So, Let's take a couple things out of this. One, it's nice to see the right side of the offensive line have a very good showing with, again, John Feliciano in at right guard for Spencer Buford, who might be back this week, and Colton McKivitz holding his own at right tackle. One to the left of Feliciano, Jake Brendel, has been struggling for a couple games, and there's some chatter on social media, which, you know, there's chatter about everything on social media, wondering if Jake Brendel would sit and John Feliciano would move over to center now that Bureford is back at right guard. I don't anticipate any major moves on the offensive line like that happening unless there's an injury or a wildly significant drop in play. And while Brendel hasn't been great, I don't think his drop is that significant that they would consider moving Feliciano over to center. And on defense... Obviously, Charvarius Ward had a great game, but the D-tackles, McGill, who was elevated from the practice squad, backup rotational D-tackle, Javon Kinlaw starting D-tackle, 25.7, lowest rated player on defense, and his running mate was Kevin Givens. We're going to talk about injuries, what the the D-tackle situation could look like 
against Baltimore, but let's talk about snap counts first. So on offense, the team had 56 snaps. George Kittle played 48. Charlie Werner, 11. And Braden Willis, 6 for your tight end rotation. And at running back, out of 56 snaps, uh, Christian McCaffrey played 43. Jordan Mason, 13. Jeremy McNichols was called up from the practice squad, did not play a snap on defense, 74 total snaps. Only safety Jair Brown played all 74. Your defensive end rotation was five deep. Starts with Nick Bosa, 47 snaps. We had 27 snaps off. That's great to see. Chase Young with 40 snaps. Randy Gregory, 39. Cleland Farrell with 30. And Robert Beal, the rookie, with 11. At D tackle, where there was a lot of there was injuries and issues stopping the run. Javon Kinlaw, 45. Kevin Givens, 42. T.Y. McGill, 29. And Kalia Davis, 13, who went out of that game with a high ankle sprain. Miss tackles. Still an issue. And I said last podcast, maybe this is who the 49ers defense is now or that they've become for whatever reason. Fatigue, over-pursuing plays, offensive players just wanting it more, but they missed 16 tackles against Arizona. That is a season high. And they've missed 42 tackles, excuse me, over the last three games, Arizona, Seattle, and Philadelphia, equals 14 missed tackles a game. Against a team like Arizona, a running back like James Conner, a quarterback like Kyler Murray is going to cause defenses to miss tackles, but the, to the tune of 16 is too high. That number should always be under 10. If you are a good, solid defense and a fundamentally sound tackling defense, that number should be under 10. 42 over the last three games. And some of it, well, maybe not the missed tackles, but a lot of the big struggles the Niners had against the Cardinals were due to injuries, as I mentioned last podcast. Eric Armstead at defensive tackle was out. Starter Javon Hargrave was out. And Kalia Davis sprained his ankle during the game. High ankle sprain. He is now on injured reserve. And there is no telling if Eric Armstead or Javon Hargrave will be available for the Baltimore game. They do have one extra day to get ready. Defensive tackle free agent Adamican Sue, formerly of the Eagles, the Buccaneers, the Lions, worked out for the Dolphins this week, and there was some discussion, and Kyle Shanahan was asked point blank in the press conference. They kicked the tires on Adamican Sue last year. They had him in for workout, uh, didn't join the team, joined the Eagles, obviously beat the Niners in the NFC Championship game and went to the Super Bowl. So there was no immediate movement from Kyle Shannon, and he, and he said that we have some guys on the practice squad we can elevate. We're always evaluating players that can make our team better, but there's nothing imminent there. The 49ers did work out four defensive linemen, two defensive ends, Daniel Wise and Eric Banks, and two defensive tackles, Taylor, Taylor Stallworth and Michael Dodge. And it was recently reported that the 49ers, through an agent, have signed Taylor Stallworth to the practice squad. The Niners are going to have to release somebody, but that'll bring them with three defensive tackles on the practice squad, McGill, Stallworth, and Spencer Wage out of North Dakota State. Now, everybody's saying that the fact that the Niners gave up a season-high 236 yards on the ground to Arizona 
can largely be attributed to the fact that they're missing their two defensive tackles. I don't know about largely attributed to the fact, but it can't that that is a contributing factor. The missed tackles are another. Now, Arizona came in obviously with a mobile court, mobile quarterback and they they're not running the ball fantastically well from the running back position, but in some between Murray and, and Josh Dobbs when, when he was on the team, they're getting about another 40 to 50 yards, say 30 to 50 yards per game on average from the quarterback. And Kyler Murray was about 50 yards this past week against San Francisco. So that's 186 yards given up to running backs. Again, not acceptable, but how much do you honestly think Armstead and Hargrave would have helped? Do we actually think with them in, they would have trimmed 100 rushing yards off that 236 number? That's a lot, guys. That's a lot. And yes, there was one run that I think running back... um, was it DiMercato or one of the backup running backs run ran in for like 42 yards, which was a big chunk play in the second half. But even beyond that, that's almost four. That's still almost 200 yards of running. I don't know how much Armstead and Hargrave would have helped out that specific game. Now this game could be an anomaly. Arizona was committed to the run. They were running it down the Niners throats at times, but again, Armstead and Hargrave in, If you want to be generous and say, yeah, maybe there's 100 less rushing yards, that's still 136. That's still about 50 yards, more than 50 yards above their season average. So Arizona went in with a certain game plan, and they executed. They executed well above what they wildly thought would be possible with Armstead and Hargrave out, but it would have worked above the Niners' uh, season average in rushing yards allowed anyway. So something needs to be looked at, discussed, schemed up for a Baltimore team that is going to give the Niners a heavy dose of Gus Edwards, Justice Hill at running back, and of course, Lamar Jackson at quarterback. We will get there as we preview that game. Other injuries, Jawan Jennings, receiver is in concussion protocol. Again, he has another day to clear. Hopefully he will be. Diamador Lenore was stepped on. Uh, His rib, he has a rib contusion, and Cleland Farrell has an ankle sprain. They are all questionable. Hopefully, at least two, if not all three, can suit up. Now, more talking heads, either not necessarily doubting Brock, but downplaying what he has done for this 49er team this year. And the the most recent one is Doug Gottlieb, who stated... He can name 15 quarterbacks off the top of his head that the 49ers would have just as good or a better record than instead of Brock Purdy. Now, there are quarterbacks, I'm sure, that if a team, if a GM was starting a team, and we're not talking about fantasy football here, we're talking about actual football constructing a team, there are quarterbacks that GMs are going to want over Brock Purdy because GMs are still enamored with the cannon arm, the legs, the speed, more so than the ability to read a defense and process things quickly. Because everybody thinks they can coach that up, whereas speed, arm strength, certain things are just God-given abilities, right? 
But how many quarterbacks have come in that people have taken a flyer on thinking with coaches thinking that they can coach them up and it never materializes either at one stop, two, three, four teams, because there's always going to be a a coach, an offensive coordinator, a QB coach that says, yes, I can get the best out of that quarterback. And a lot of it's fit. The fit that Purdy has in the 49er offense with Shanahan is a great one. And that's not to say that other quarterbacks wouldn't fit as well. But there's, I don't think there's 15 quarterbacks that would have the Niners 11-3 and three and leading the league in touchdown passes, with which Brock Purdy is. But, you know, right off the bat, your uh, GM is going to take Mahomes. They're going to take Allen. They're going to take Burrow. They're going to take Herbert. They very well might take Jalen Hurts. They might take Trevor Lawrence. You might have some GMs that might take C.J. Stroud. If you're taking age and health out of it, there are some that may take uh, a Matthew Stafford or a Kirk Cousins or a Dak Prescott, Aaron Rodgers, even though he's 41. But, you know, so if you want to say that there's, you know, 15 quarterbacks in the league that maybe possess more or better physical traits than Brock Purdy, I can get behind that. But for what Purdy is doing... He is second in the league in passing yards, and the Niners have thrown the fewest passes in the NFL. Let that simmer a bit as I go over some other things. He is first in touchdown passes. First in yards per attempt, first in QBR, first in QB rating. Here's what George Kittle had to say. He was interviewed by by Rich Eisen. Because ever since... Uh, Kittle's been there. The quarterback issue has always come up, whether it was, you know, Jimmy G and Jimmy got hurt. Then it was Nick Mullins. How can Nick Mullins play? Um, Trey Lance, now Brock Purdy. Just it's the conversation that they can't get away from. But here was Kittle's quote, quote, Brock's playing at an incredibly elite high level consistently week in and week out. 130 plus passer ratings, perfect passer ratings doing everything you're supposed to do as a quarterback, the way he drops back, his footwork, his reads, using his eyes to throw people off, the way he gets the ball to his guys in space. I mean, he's playing at such a high level right now and the consistency of it too. It's hard to go out there and play football consistently 24-7. And it is. Aside from three games, you go back to Cleveland, Minnesota, and Cincinnati. When you go back to what Purdy did last year and this year, how are there still people either doubting him or disregarding what he's doing because he has weapons around him? Every quarterback, every great quarterback or any quarterback that I called elite has weapons. They would not be, or I'm, I'm sorry, not elite because it's only, uh, only, Patrick Mahomes is elite. Any very good or great quarterbacks generally has great weapons because they wouldn't be a good or great quarterback. Otherwise, it would be literally impossible for Dan Marino, John Elway, Steve Young, Joe Montana, you name it, to go on the Carolina Panthers team this year and put up even respectable numbers. So let's... At least get that out of the way. Kyle Shanahan builds upon what George Kittle said. And this is something that evaluators don't take for granted because it is not measurable. 
if you want to call it a soft skill, but a very important one for quarterbacks, and that is field vision. Here's Kyle's quote. I think it's a God-given trait that develops. The more time you get put in those situations, the more reps you can get, your preparation to what to anticipate in those throws, everything that can everything can make that a talent that you were kind of born with and that you can extremely excel in, or conversely, if you don't have it. But you definitely have to have a certain amount to be able to see the field the way Brock does. It's not sexy. It's not a sexy trait. There is going to be nothing about Brock. Per- now, I shouldn't say nothing. There are going to be rare traits or times about watching a game where Brock Purdy is quarterbacking and anyone's going to go, wow, or God, that's a sports center highlight, or look at that play. You know who Brock Purdy is? Here's the correlate. He is the Tim Duncan of the NFL. Tim Duncan, the forward slash center of the San Antonio Spurs, was nicknamed the Big Fundamental. He didn't talk. He he wasn't on commercials, at least not in the Northeast. Maybe he was in the San Antonio, uh, Texas area. No, he wasn't a me, me, me guy. There was nothing sexy about his game. But he won, what, four or five NBA championships, two MVPs, nicknamed the Big Fundamental. He did things right in a non-flashy way, in the least sexy way possible, in the most beige way possible. That's who Tim, that's who Brock Purdy is. He's the small white fundamental. (laughs) That's how he, he plays the position the way it's supposed to be played as a quarterback, not as a running quarterback, not as a rocket armed quarterback, as a quarterback. What's asked as a quarterback is snap the ball, read the defense and get the ball to your open man. And on occasion, make some off schedule plays when they happen. The reason why Lamar Jackson scrambles as much as he does or someone like Jalen Hurts because they're not getting through their progressions fast enough. When Lamar Jackson has eight seconds to throw the ball like we saw last game, I forget what game it was, nationally televised, don't you think people were open before then? Don't you think he could have gotten rid of the ball if he could get through his progressions as fast as someone like Purdy does? But that gets misinterpreted as, oh my, look at the time he's buying with his legs. Oh my God, he bought seven, eight, nine seconds and he still found someone downfield. Yeah, because either he didn't trust the first or second reader, couldn't get to his third and fourth. Simple as that. And that leads into the preview of 49ers Baltimore Christmas night, 815 on ESPN and ABC. The 49ers are a five and a half point favorite, which has not sit well with some Ravens. Um, I think one of their safeties said that they feel slightly disrespected by that. Guys, if this game was at home, Baltimore would be favored. Five and a half might be a little bit high. I could see maybe three and a half or four. And then neutral field, maybe the Niners are a point favorite or even. And in Baltimore, Baltimore is a two or three point favorite. You guys are on the road. Primetime game in San Francisco. Now, I'm sure some Raven fans will travel. That's fine. Don't, you know, the disrespect card. I mean, who should feel more disrespected, the Ravens or Brock Purdy? After all the shit he's been hearing for a year and a half. 
versus what the Ravens are going to hear this week. Let's talk about the Ravens, though. Their offense led by Lamar Jackson at running back Gus Edwards and Justice Hill. They lost Keaton Mitchell, their speed back um, for the year with an ACL tear. Isaiah Likely, the tight end, in for Mark Andrews, who's rehabbing an ankle injury. And at receiver, it's Zay Flowers, Rashad Bateman, and Odell Beckham Jr. For the year, Lamar Jackson, 3,100 passing yards, 17 touchdowns, 7 interceptions, 741 rushing yards, which is about 53 per game, and five rushing touchdowns. Gus Edwards averages 47 rushing yards per game, has 11 total rushing touchdowns. And the receivers, Zay Flowers, 49 yards per game and three touchdowns total. Uh, Odell, 43 yards per game, three touchdowns total. And Rashad Bateman, 23 per game, one total touchdown. Isaiah Likely, who has come on since Andrews went out, about a month ago, in his last three games, he is averaging 64 yards per game and has two total touchdowns. Isaiah Likely is, is at least yardage-wise, the Ravens' biggest threat offensively in the passing game. Does that mean he's going to have a bigger game than, than Flowers or Odell? I, I don't know. I mean, I might pick him up for my, for my fantasy team. Um, if he can get me, you know, four for 60, that's, that's a good 10 points right there. But he has filled in more than admirably for Mark Andrews. On defense, defensive tackle Justin Matabuke, linebackers Roquan Smith and Patrick Queen, cornerback Marlon Humphrey, safeties Kyle Hamilton and Marcus Williams. Matabuke has 12 sacks. Jadavian Clowney, defensive end, seven and a half sacks. They have 50 sacks as a team. That means they're averaging three and a half sacks per game. The Ravens can get after the quarterback, and it's something that the Niners obviously need to be aware of. On offense, they are the number five total offense. Pass, they are 20th, averaging 210 per game. The number one team running the ball, averaging 164 yards. And number four in scoring, 27.4 points per game. How, does the, how do the Niners compare to that? Niners are the number two total offense. They're number two passing, 263 yards per game. Number three rushing at 140 yards. And number three in points scored at 30.4. Defense, Baltimore is number two overall, seven against the pass, allowing 186 yards per game, 10th against the rush, allowing 102, and number one in points scored, allowing 16.1. The Niners are the number nine overall defense, 15th against the pass, allowing 221, third against the rush, allowing 89, and two, second in points allowed, allowing 16.7 per game. Turnover differential, Niners are number one in the league at plus 13. Baltimore is plus five. So the Niners, right off the bat, have to get the run defense right when you're going up against the number one rushing team, averaging 164 a game. Niners not too far behind at 140, or at least ranking. Uh, they're ranked third. Baltimore is ranked first. Uh, the, the Ravens are giving up over 100 yards a game on the ground, 102. Um, they are the number one scoring defense. So this, this is an interesting game. This is going to be some strength on strength and strength on weakness, weakness. So the 49ers, um, strength offensively, they're number two against the pass. The Ravens are number seven against the pass. They're number three against the rush. The Ravens are number 10. And if the Ravens can run the ball and control the clock against San Francisco, it might be a very long day. But at the same time, if they can make the Ravens one-dimensional, they're only averaging 210 passing yards a game, which is right around what the Niners give up, 221. So if they can hold 
Lamar Jackson under 230, but still somehow make the Ravens one-dimensional, keep him in the pocket. That'll be a, go a long way towards beating Baltimore. Now let's look at the Ravens' three losses this year. One was early in the season against the Colts. They lost 22 to 19. A couple weeks later, they lost at Pittsburgh 17 to 10, and then lost at home to Cleveland 33 to 31, in which they were up big, and, and the Browns scored the last 16 points. First game against Indianapolis. Baltimore had two turnovers, the Colts none. The Colts had a four-minute advantage in time of possession. Against Pittsburgh, the Ravens had three turnovers. The Steelers won. Time of possession was even. And against Cleveland, two turnovers apiece. The Browns had an eight-and-a-half-minute time of possession advantage. So it's this is not easy to execute, but easy to see for San Francisco. If the Niners can win the turnover battle and win the time of possession battle, they will probably win the game. If they can win one of those, I would actually lean towards the turnover battle. They would have a, a good shot to win the game. Indianapolis, they didn't have Jonathan Taylor at the time, but still ran the ball well, or relatively well that game. Cleveland is a running team, hence the eight and a half minute time of possession advantage. If they can turn Jackson over, Get off the field on third downs. The Ravens are going to um, convert some, but you can't have a conversion rate of, you know, 60, 70% or even 50%. Got to get them off the field and take care of the ball. I think this should be a, a good, evenly matched game. Should be a close game. I think it's going to go under what the spread is. I don't think the Niners are going to cover. Now, math matchups to watch. Both pass rushes getting after the quarterback. Baltimore, 50 sacks on the season. The 49ers have 43 is Steve Wilkes going to employ another rush contain defense on the D-line like he did against Jalen Hurts in Philadelphia or in Philadelphia and Kyler Murray in Arizona? Lamar buys time. Like I mentioned, that the last nationally televised game that I watched, there were times when he had six, seven, eight seconds to throw. You can't give a quarterback, any quarterback, but someone like Lamar Jackson that much time because that's going to end in Probably a completion because you're asking your your secondary linebackers to cover way too long, or linebackers are going to get you know put into situations where they have to choose: do I drop and cover someone? Do I, you know, go for Lamar if he's going to run, and then that could be a you know a twenty yard gain over their head. They they're going to have to come after him at times. They're going to have to pick and choose their spots. Zay Flowers, good receiver as a rookie. Rashad Bateman doesn't scare me too much. Odell. Uh, you know, can be explosive at times. And, and obviously tight end Isaiah likely has had a nice three game stretch, but I think the 49ers defense and secondary can control them. I think where the Niners could be susceptible, like any team could be, would be to the big scramble, broken play. Someone gets lost over the top or even someone gets lost over the middle. Third down conversions, keeping the clock moving. And we'll see how much read option Baltimore is going to incorporate. They don't run a ton anymore. They want Lamar to, to be a passer more than a run first type of quarterback. But even still, only 17 touchdowns passing on the year. Purdy's got 29. If you combine Lamar Jackson's passing yards and rushing yards, I think he has maybe 80 more total all-purpose yards than Purdy does. And he doesn't, Purdy doesn't run at all. But Purdy still has more, more overall touchdowns than Lamar does. Purdy's got 29 overall, and Lamar's got 22. For you MVP people be saying, oh, MVP and this or that, 
MVP doesn't need to be elite, splashy player. It could still be, like Tim Duncan, the most fundamentally sound, best player in a given season. Which, right now, Purdy is up there with, you know, with Tua and Tyreek and McCaffrey. And we could still throw, you know, Prescott in there if you want. And we'll see what Lamar Jackson does down the stretch. Brock has been sacked 26 times over 13 games, so that's two sacks a game. Lamar's been sacked 35 times, nine more times. Whether those are all-out blitzes or Lamar trying to buy time or stumbling or whatever it may be, the Ravens do have a pretty good D-line. Credit to Purdy for keeping the sack numbers low, getting rid of the ball quickly, making his reads and, you know, that, that feels about right, right. You watch a game, Purdy gets sacked maybe one or two times as an outlier, maybe three. So he is giving his offense, he's making his offensive line look better than they are by getting the ball out of his hand as quickly as he is. Now, what else to watch? Both run defenses. San Francisco injuries on the line. Can they hold Baltimore to under, let's say, 150? Because Baltimore obviously likes to run the ball and it's a multifaceted rushing attack. Can they hold the Ravens to under 150? I think they got a good chance to win. If they could hold them under 130, 125, 130, then I think they have a really good chance to win, assuming San Francisco takes care of the football. Now, on the flip side, Baltimore's not terrible against the run. They're top 10. They're allowing 102 a game. The Niners run for 140 a game. Can San Francisco get to that 30, 30-plus 30 carries number? Can they control the ball on the ground? I mean, this is going to be an interesting game. Is this going to be a shootout? Or is this going to be a grinded out first to 20 wins, given how good both defenses are? But San Francisco, if they want to get to 30 carries again, Eli Mitchell was out the past two weeks with a knee injury. Not sure if he's going to play, but again, Jordan Mason looked good. I wouldn't mind battering the Ravens D-line and defense with Jordan Mason a bit. So if McCaffrey gets about 17, 18 carries, can Mason get close to 10? Or even Mason and Mitchell? Because we know the script, right? Shanahan's not going to take McCaffrey out unless McCaffrey wants to come out. And you'll see during a game where he'll he'll put like his finger up like one or two just to come out for one or two plays. Then he goes back in. So it's not on Shanahan or the running back coach to split series or sit McCaffrey for a full series because of what he means to the offense, the options he gives them. But if they're gonna, gonna, going to commit to the ground, they're going to need to find 10 plus carries from somebody else. Hope it's Jordan Mason, and if Mitchell's healthy enough to play, that would be great too. Um, but I would love to see them get to 30 carries. Can the Niners have less than miss, 10 missed tackles, please? And it's Lamar Jackson. Wrap him up. They need, I mean, Gus Edwards is a physical runner. Justice Hill is, is physical, but more of a speed runner. Um, Odell can make you miss. Zay Flowers can make you miss. Wrap up. Wrap up too often. The nine sometimes Niner players are going for like bumping somebody or laying a big hit with the shoulder. Wrap up, wrap up, and then your your teammates will rally and get the offensive player on the ground. I'm looking for less than ten missed tackles this game. Can San Francisco get up early and potentially make Baltimore one dimensional? Now I'm not saying if if the Ravens win the toss and defer, the Niners go down and score. Okay, they're up seven nothing. That's not getting up early. If they can get up 10, 14, 17 and maybe take the run away from Baltimore, make Baltimore play from behind, which means making Lamar Jackson more of a passer. That could play into the 49ers' hands defensively. 
Because the closer the game is, the more Baltimore is probably going to lean on their run. Hey, you know, maybe even if Baltimore gets down 10, 14, 17, they don't get away from their identity. They're a running team, but maybe the runs are more Lamar dropping back, not seeing anything and trying to take off to pick up yardage versus actual handoffs. Happens to a lot of teams. Now you get up 17 in the second quarter. There's a lot of time left. You're up 17 in the fourth quarter. Then Baltimore is in throwing mode. So time of game actually matters a lot as well. But I don't have a ton of confidence that the Niners are going to take away the run after what Arizona did to them. And this is a better running team than Arizona. But should they be able to get up early, that would aid their defense in knowing what's coming if if they are getting into a drop back game and keying on Lamar that way. I said this earlier, is this going to be sh- a shootout or low scoring? I mean, San Francisco scores 30.4 a game. The Ravens are only three behind him, 27.4 a game. But defensively, they're only letting up 16.7 are the Niners and 16.1 are Baltimore. So I think, you know, especially with the way that the rules and penalties and things are so skewed for the offense. I can't see this game being in the teens, but I also can't say it, see it being in the thirties either. I, I just, I don't, I can't imagine both sides are going to get lit up even in the high twenties. I think this is a game that San Francisco wins 24 to 20 earlier. I said that I don't think the Niners are going to cover the five and a half points. Would I be shocked if they won by six or seven? No, because I'm picking them to win by four. If they win by six or seven, that's that's adding a field goal on top of this. Baltimore's going to come out with a chip on their shoulder. Baltimore wants to prove on Christmas night that they are the best team in the NFL. They've heard from so many people that the Niners are the best team in the NFL. That's almost the unanimous thought now in the media is that the 49ers are the best team in the NFL. The Ravens very well, very well might be the best team in the AFC. Not very well might. They are the best team in the AFC. So let's just call it the best team in the NFC is playing the best team in the AFC. Could they meet again in the Super Bowl? Maybe. A lot of football to be played between now and then. Injuries. Who knows what can happen? Obviously, upsets. But this game, to me... Now, I've said in an earlier podcast that all these games are anxiety-driven you know, I'm nervous until the Niners start to pull away. And I will be. You know, I'm going to be stoked. This is the last game of of, of the weekend, so it can't ruin my Christmas. Um, not that I don't think it would anyway if it was played earlier or played on Sunday. But the Eagles losing at Seattle. Thank you, Seahawks. Now go fuck yourselves. Um, gives the Niners a one-and-a-half game lead over the Eagles, the Cowboys, and the Lions. So the 49ers have the the cushion to slip up one of the last three games. They win two of their last three, they get the number one seed. This is the toughest game remaining on their schedule. It's at home for Baltimore, at Washington, at home for the Rams, which I still maintain is going to be a tough game. If they could get this one, it puts them in great, shape moving forward. And if they get the Washington game, they could rest people. Maybe not the whole game, but maybe the second half against the Rams week 18. So for me, you know, if they lose this game, am I going to be pissed? Sure. You know, you you always, you know, you always want to see your team win. You always want to beat a team that's right up there with your favorite team for best team in the league. And, 
you know, obviously what's going to happen is whatever team loses this, media talking heads on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, maybe they wouldn't call the Niners or Ravens frauds. I mean, depending on if a team that loses by like, you know, 20, 30 points, maybe. But, oh, maybe they're not as good as we thought. They're 11 and 4. You know, they can play with, with another big boy, et cetera, et cetera. You know how the media goes. It's a 24-hour news cycle. Whoever loses essentially is going to be spit and pissed upon as if they're no longer a good team, which we know is not the case. But I do think Christmas night, I don't think this is a game where Purdy or Lamar Jackson or anybody is out there to prove anything, whether it's in making an MVP case or anything other than getting a win, getting a win against another good team and for the Ravens staying ahead of the Dolphins for the number one seed and for the Niners staying ahead of everybody else one and a half games up with three to go. But that concludes the 49ers section of the podcast. Stick around. We're going to be talking about the insane costs of making video games. I'm going to give a review of Star Wars Dark Disciple, and we will conclude by making week 16 NFL picks. Stay right here. It's plus time. So I saw an interesting article yesterday that made me want to do a little bit of research. So the video game Spider-Man 2, which is a PlayStation 5 exclusive, only on PlayStation 5, cost a staggering $315 million to produce. Now, licensing licensing rights from Marvel, and Sony owns, you know, the, the Spider-Man brand also. That's why we're getting this run of, like, shitty movies, Mor- Morbius, Madame Web, Craven. The Venom movies have been, have been pretty good. But licensing the Spider-Man name is part of that 315. I don't know what the number is, but it's part of it. Here's the staggering part. That $315 million represents a greater cost than any Spider-Man movie cost to make to date ever for a video game. And here's something else that's interesting. Now, we're going back four years, but in 2019, Sony spent $230 million to buy a video game company, Insomniac Games. To buy, it, co- it would cost less to buy a company than to produce a video game. And that $230, I think, in today's dollars, is worth about $180 million due to inflation. But here's why Sony doesn't care. So Sony makes PlayStation. Sony is making the Spider-Man game or producing it. They obviously farmed it out to a video game studio. The game is expected to sell over 10 million copies on PS5. And if it does that, it will make a $75 million profit. Now, I could not find units sold to date, which is weird. But what I did find is it sold over 5 million copies in its first 11 days, which was, I think, the mid-November mark. So it might be at 10 million now or close to it. And again, it's only PlayStation 5. So everything taken in a vacuum, the $315 million, you know, like, you know, like anything online, you got to go beyond the headlines. That $315 million number is staggering. And then if you quickly put together, wow, movies don't cost that much to make. 
it makes it even more like, holy crap, how are they going to make any money off of this? They're going to make, they're going to make money. And some people are saying, oh, would you spend $315 million to make a $75 million profit? Well, that's like a 25% return on investment. That's if your investment in the stock market came back at 25% when the stock market average return is at between seven and 8%, you're doing something right. The discussion between gamers is, you know, it, it usually takes between like maybe three and a half to five years for a game to come out or a sequel to come out in this case. Do they want to wait that long or would they have a smaller budget and maybe a smaller game, but you get it quicker? I don't care. These are losers that are having this conversation. I still play video games. I'm still playing F-099 and I have a bunch of games that I've either downloaded or have still in the wrapping that I haven't opened yet because I just really don't have the time or this driving need to play them. There's always going to be video games out there for people to play. Either folks that just have a PS5 or a PS5 or an Xbox X or whatever it may be. So that's Spider-Man 2 is a game specific to PS5. Did some other research. Now, these are games that I'm going to start off one that that is specific to only PS4, although a remastered version is coming out for PS5 in the new year. The Last of Us Part 2 costs $220 million to make, so almost $100 million less. And it's already sold over 10 million copies. So that is super profitable. That is what? About $175 million? Say $150 million in profit, just to be wildly conservative. Horizon Forbidden West, which was a PS4 and PS5 game, $212 million, sold 8.4 million copies. And that's part of a franchise that I think has sold over 25 million copies. Cyberpunk 2077 cost $174 million to make, but because it was available on PS5, PS4, Xbox One, and Xbox Series X or S, it has sold 25 million copies. That might be close to two, over $200 million in profit. And that's not even talking about ridiculously groundbreaking games sales-wise. And we'll start off with a, with a low one, The Witcher 3, which was on, I guess it was PS... Four Xbox One came to Switch, over 50 million copies sold. Red Dead Redemption 2, PS4, Xbox One, 55 million units sold. And Grand Theft Auto 5, PS4, Xbox One, and maybe PC, I'm not sure, 185 million units. 185. If it took only 10 copies, 10 million, 10 million to make Spider-Man 2 profitable, how much money do you think Grand Theft Auto 5 made their development company? Crazy. And when you can go multi-platform, that, that's the way to go, obviously, right? Because you're getting in, you're you're dipping into so many other multi-platform, or if you're making it still making things available to PS4 and PS5, and, and the PS4 is going to be phased out probably in the next year or so in terms of games being available for it, if it hasn't started to slow down already. But video game industry, even though there are you know smaller shops, uh, Canadian, U.S., Japanese that are shuttering and or getting acquired by bigger companies, highly highly profitable when you can have. When you can purchase an IP or create your own 
that becomes a mega hit. Listen, for every Redemption, Red Dead Redemption 2, you're probably going to have 10 to 20 bomb games or games that just barely break even, if at all. But if you can create that franchise, wildly, wildly lucrative. So let's go from video games to novels slash audiobooks. Star Wars Dark Disciple, written by Christy Golden. Again, animated by Mark Thompson. This is a story that came out uh, four years ago. It was the fifth book in the new canon once Disney reset things. And we have the old Legends Expanded Universe and the Disney new canon. This was a book that really didn't pique my interest at all until I finished what I was listening to and wanted to listen to something else. And I reread the description of this book and I thought it sounded interesting. So it takes place between episode two, attack of the clones and episode three, revenge of the Sith. So right in the middle of the clone wars and the Jedi council asks Jedi master Quinlan Voss literally to assassinate count Dooku. I think they're realizing that if you, you know, if you kill Dooku, the whole separatist movement will fold and the Clone Wars would be over. The Jedi have a minor converse, not minor, but a quick conversation about, well, is assassination the Jedi way? And the answer to that is no. But they decide, listen, drastic times, drastic measures. We need to get Dooku off the table. So they send Quinlan Voss out to assassinate him, but they ask him to go to the former Sith, Asajj Ventress, for help. And she was Dooku's former Sith apprentice and was basically cast aside and attempted to assassinate Dooku on a couple of occasions, did not succeed. And now she's basically a bounty hunter. She's moved past that, but the, the council is hoping that Quinlan Voss can restoke that revenge in her to help Quinlan Voss out assassinating Duco. He, he finds her, convinces her that, you know, he's a legit bounty hunter. They start working together on assignments and they eventually fall for each other, which is a major part of the plot. And I think done, done well, done tastefully. So they go, uh, you know, mid-book, they go after Dooku. Quinlan Voss gets captured, tortured by Count Dooku, and Ventress, Asajj Ventress asks bounty hunters, including Bubba Fett, to help break him out. They fail. Asajj Ventress actually confronts Quinlan Voss to get him out of his, his cell, and he is so overcome with the dark side that he starts having a lightsaber battle with her. He wants to stay... Uh, and Asajj Ventress thinks that Count Dooku has brainwashed him and she, you know, she thinks that hope for him is gone, that he has fallen to the dark side and, and there's no getting him back. Goes back to the Jedi Council, tells him now the Jedi get involved to mount a rescue and they actually do rescue him. Obi-Wan Kenobi, Anakin and others wind up getting him out of Count Dooku's castle or, or whatever, wherever he was being held. But the Jedi Council are not sure if he's Sith or not. Asajj Ventress is claiming, you know, there's scenes where she's yelling at the Jedi Masters, Mace Windu and Yoda, you know, why? He's Sith, why can't you feel it? You can't sense it, and the Jedi can't sense anything. Quinlan Voss is saying, I'm okay, I'm good, what are you talking about? And Asajj Ventress gets so, you know, frustrated that she just kind of, she leaves. She just gives up on the Jedi and on him. The Jedi wound up giving Asajj Ventress, since she was a former Sith, a full pardon, because she was part of the Jedi that, you know, helped eventually get Quinlan Voss back to the Jedi Temple. 
but she, she's gone. She, she's convinced that Quinlan Voss has turned to Sith and the Jedi can't sense it. So now the Jedi are still questioning, like, where does, where does Quinlan Voss's loyalty lie? Is it to Su- Dooku and the Sith or, or to the Jedi? So they put him on a mission to go back and try to kill Dooku again. Now, th- this poor guy was tortured wildly. Either he was turned or he wasn't, but he, he, it was attempted, and they just want to just want to throw him back out there. And I'm reading this going, nah, I don't know. What if, what if he just decides to stay? Or, and then they, they expound upon their plan saying, okay, we're going to, we're going to send him. We're going to have him hunt down Dooku again, infiltrate, hunt him down. But Obi-Wan and Anakin, you go with them to follow him. Stay out of sight, but follow him. All right. So they're keeping an eye on him. Fine. That I could believe. Quinlan Voss finds Asajj Ventress again, asks for her help says that, you know, let we can kill Count Dooku and finally be free of him. We don't have to be looking over our shoulder. We can actually, you know, have a life. And at this point in the story, it's interesting, Asajj Ventress, who was a character introduced during the Clone Wars cartoon series as a Sith assassin, Sith, red lightsaber, all that good stuff, it has finally put all the, the Sith stuff behind her. And she wants to have, she wants, she's changed. She wants to have a better life. She wants to be with Quinlan Vos. She just wants to give up on this stuff. And it's essential, at first she says, let's just not go, just leave now. And it's really like similar to what Padme was saying to Anakin in Revenge of the Sith, episode three. You know, just, let's just leave. You don't have to work for um, Palpatine anymore. Like let's, we can just have our own life. It plays out a little bit, a little bit differently, but here's where it kind of falls apart. So at least story-wise, and I was kind of shaking my head listening to it, although the voice acting again was phenomenal. So Quinlan Voss winds up boarding Count Dooku's ship, tells Ventress to wait on her own ship, you know, to pick me up so we can make a fast escape. Okay, so she, she stays where she is. Obi-Wan and Anakin are another on, an, on a different ship. They wind up getting onto Count Dooku's ship also, and they wind up getting into a room that they were sensing Count Dooku was going to go into. So it's like a darkened room, they go in, they literally hide under a desk. Count Dooku comes in and he kind of like hesitates and they're wondering, Anakin and Obi-Wan are wondering, you know, can he sense us through the force, which he can't, which is just, even though I've read a lot of Star Wars, that just doesn't sit well with me. Like he, he should know <laughs> two Jedis, a Jedi master and another Jedi are in there. Then Quinlan Voss comes, confronts Dooku. They have a lightsaber battle. Voss knocks the lightsaber out of Dooku's hand. Dooku's on the ground. And now Quinlan Voss has the lightsaber to Count Dooku's throat. And you know how it's nothing's going to happen to Dooku because Count Dooku is alive in the beginning of Episode 3, Revenge of the Sith. So you know where this is going. How they get there is just kind of terrible. So Quinlan Voss does not kill Count Dooku. He wants an introduction to be made to Darth Sidious because even though he doesn't say it to Dooku, he wants to kill Darth Sidious and Count Dooku and then just have the, either have the universe be rid of the Sith or he would become the Sith master. There's just this big back and forth kind of going on in his head. When Quinlan Voss decides not to count, kill Count Dooku, then Anakin and Obi-Wan jump out from behind the desk, which is just like, like surprise, like ridiculous. They wind up disarming Quinlan Voss and they arrest both Quinlan and Count Dooku. Okay. Then it cuts to Anakin, Obi-Wan, and two other Jedi, and a bunch of clone troopers are in the ship that Obi-Wan and Anakin came on, and they are taking them back to Coruscant. 
to be tried by the Jedi Council. Now, first off, Quinlan Vos's whole mission was to kill Count Dooku, right? Like that, that was literally his mission. He didn't do it, but Anakin or Obi-Wan could have. That was the mandate by the Jedi Council. Kill old fart Count Dooku. But no, they don't. They don't even talk about it. There's no discussion with Anakin or Obi-Wan of, hey, 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 wait a second. The, the council told us to kill him. Why aren't we? Like, there was no discussion. They're just like, oh, we have him arrested. Let's take him back. So now you have Count Dooku and Quinlan Voss, two powerful force users in literal handcuffs without their lightsabers, but in handcuffs, walking down a ship with two young Jedi and a bunch of clone troopers. And I'm, I'm thinking, really? Like handcuffs are, are going to be what's going to stop these two guys? On top of that, Anakin and, and Obi-Wan go to another part of the ship to, count, to contact the Jedi Council to say that they have him in custody. So now your two big hitter, heavy hitters of Jedi are gone. And guess what happens? They break free. When I was reading this, and you never really, you never see it used really in any other movie, I don't think. And none of really any of the books that I've read that, that I can think of. Remember in the first movie, the original Star Wars, 1977, A New Hope, when Princess Leia was hiding in the beginning of the movie and the stormtroopers come and she winds up shooting one or two of them and one of the stormtroopers shoots Princess Leia but doesn't kill her, winds up stunning her. And that's those blue rings that came out of the blaster and hit her, stunned her, knocked her out. You never see it used ever against Jedi, like... Everyone just using black, like, it's just weird. It's like, a, it's a very effective way, I think, to immobilize somebody. I'm thinking to myself, all right, once you have Dooku and, and Voss captured, stun the shit out of them. Stun them until they're, they're drooling. And then go to your med team and get us and pump them full of sedatives until they are out cold. And then maybe you also put them in some sort of like of a restraining box or something. Maybe carbonite. Like Han Solo was in an Empire Strikes Back. The Mandalorian, remember that, that series, three, three seasons in, and hopefully season four comes out in 2024. He had a carbonite maker, I don't know what you want to call it, in his ship to transport dangerous criminals. I think that's how I'd want to transport a Sith. I'd want to stun the shit out of him, pump him full of sedatives, and put him in carbonite. Not handcuffs. Are you kidding me? So obviously... Voss and Dooku escape. Um, Asajj Ventress picks them up. Their, their ship winds up getting shot down on a nearby planet. Uh, and not to give away the rest of it, because it, overall, 90%, 95% of this book is good, other than this last part. Uh, the Republic and the Jedi assault um, Ventress and Quinlan Voss and Count Dooku on this planet. They're held up in like some sort of stronghold. And obviously, Count Dooku gets away and the book kind of ends shortly thereafter. I won't say any other spoilers. Good book. I mean, I enjoy, like, good book. I enjoyed the interact. I enjoyed the thought of a Jedi being an assassin. I, I enjoyed the interaction between Quinlan Voss and Asajj Ventress, bringing in Obi-Wan and Anakin and Count Dooku and other characters from movies that you'd be familiar with if you've seen the Star Wars movies. And it was generally well-written. Just the end on how you would actually detain two Sith was absurd. I mean, I would like masking tape their whole body, duct tape. Like, oh my God. 
mummify them. I, it was absurd. So the last part of this too, though, is how they characterize the force. And this has been going on, you know, for a while in the new books, some of the old books and cartoon shows and, and movies generally. And I don't, I don't agree with the portrayal in this book. They portray the force, the, the dark side of the force as something that can consume someone and take someone over, over almost like you were possessed by a spirit. They don't go that far in the description. They don't go close to that far in the description, but to me, it was always, you either have a good person or a bad person. And the way they use the force shows in that manifestation, dark side users choke people's throat. Dark side users use force light lightning. Dark side users or evil people use the force for aggression and attack and killing. And Jedi are the protectors to me. Like the force is in a way a gun. You could either have the gun being wielded by a policeman who should be protecting people and only firing when necessary versus giving it to a terrorist or someone mentally unstable who's going to open fire on everyone. That's the dark side version of it. There's one force and how you tap into it is a reflection of your soul, your heart, your intent, and would either make you a Jedi or light force user or a Sith or dark side user. But this idea of being controlled or hypnotized to me is, is terrible. And the old canon books in one of the books had it right. And it was during the new Jedi order series where an alien invasion, the Yuuzhan Vong came and invaded and the Jedi were having really hard problems with them because they couldn't sense them in the force. Joss, Jason Solo, Han and, and Leia's son was captured and tortured by the Yuuzhan Vong, but one of the people that, that was torturing him, her, her name was Virgery, and she was a former Jedi master, but was with the Vong for so long that she became twisted. And she was con continually testing Jason Solo's interpretation of right and wrong, Jedi and Sith, light side and dark side, etc. And one of the revelations that she made is there is no dark side, there is no light side, there is just the Force. And how you use it determines, you know, what type of person you are. I bought into that. That's what I always thought it was. And I'm like, wow, that makes sense. Naturally, after the new Jedi Order series ended, they went back and retconned that and, and Virgery wasn't, she, she was a Sith and she was lying and that's not true, et cetera, et cetera. Star Wars geek, for what it's worth, that is my opinion. It's not going to change anything, but I just don't, it, it absolves people of personal responsibility. And they always, and Star Wars always wants that person who fell to the dark side to be redeemed. And to me, if you make bad choices, and if you already have a power to use and summon the force, and you choose to use it in an aggressive, murderous way, you should not be able to be redeemed because you made that choice. It's not that the dark side possessed you and caused you to do this. No, no, no. You did it yourself. That's my interpretation. It's not going to change. That would be a better, in my opinion, interpretation of how Jedi and Sith interact with the force. So enough about Star Wars. Let's get to week 16. NFL pick starts tonight, Thursday night. Pretty good game. New Orleans Saints at the LA Rams. Saints needed to stay in the wild card hunt, but also to, at least for the time being, get a half game up in their division, the NFC South. The Rams fighting for their wild card lives and have looked pretty good the last, you know, six or so games. I will take the Rams Saturday. You got two games, Cincinnati at Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh offensively is a mess. Mason Rudolph 
riding to the rescue. We'll see what he can do, but I will take and trust Jake Browning and the Bengals, even though Jamar Chase is out with, I think, a separated shoulder. But I think the Bengals offense will do more than the Steelers offense will, and they'll get the win. Buffalo at the Chargers game is only on Peacock streaming service. Chargers still starting Easton Stick. Obviously, Justin Herbert's done for the year. I will take the Bills, and hopefully they can limit the amount that Josh Allen throws because that's when they win. Indianapolis at Atlanta. Atlanta's turning back to Taylor Heineke at quarterback. I don't know if it matters all that much. I will take the Colts. Seattle at Tennessee. Seahawks and either Drew Locke or Geno Smith. It still hasn't been announced who's going to start. I will take Will Levis and the Titans at home. Detroit at Minnesota. Obviously, Detroit and Jared Goff uh, a lot better at home than on the road, but this is a dome, so it's kind of like at home for the Lions, and the Vikings will be starting Nick Mullins, who played well at Cincinnati last weekend, but I think the Lions get the victory. Washington at the Jets. So, Zach Wilson, what, I guess he's in, in concussion protocol. If he plays, they'll beat Washington. If he doesn't, the commanders will lose. I know that's not me making a pick, so I'm going to pick the Jets to get a win and get them further away from a pick for a quarterback, which wouldn't make sense anyway because you want to give Aaron Rodgers as much protection and as many weapons as you can if you have him for the next year or two. Green Bay at Carolina, good for Carolina getting their second win. Green Bay has lost two straight, but they will snap that at Carolina. Cleveland at Houston, it sounds like C.J. Stroud is going to miss another game. So it's going to be Case Keenum for the Texans. I will take the Browns led by Joe Flacco. Jacksonville at Tampa, bit of a toss-up game. Jacksonville's not as bad as they looked against the Ravens. And Baker Mayfield's not as good as he looked against the Packers, getting the only visiting QB perfect quarterback rating in Lambeau Field history. Got a funny feeling here. I will take the Buccaneers. Arizona at Chicago. Chicago will win that game. Don't really have much to say. Otherwise, Dallas at Miami. It's another road game for the Cowboys. So I'll take the Dolphins. It looks like Tyreek Hill is going to play this, play, uh, this week. And I think Miami will make it too much of a track meet for the Cowboys. New England at Denver. Bailey Zappi for the Patriots. Russell Wilson, who got screamed at last week by Sean Payton. Entirely too much was made out of that. I will take the Broncos as they are still in the playoff hunt. Monday, Christmas Day, we got three games. Las Vegas at the Chiefs. The Chiefs are going to win that game. Giants at the Eagles. The Eagles are going to win that game. And the big one, the Ravens at the 49ers. I took the 49ers 24-20. to So that concludes the podcast for today and this week. Like always, I want to thank you for taking time out of your busy routine to make us part of your listening schedule. A lot of football on Thursday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, in addition to college basketball, NBA, NHL, whatever else. College bowl games are going to be going on this week, and the bigger ones obviously will be happening the week after um, Christmas. Uh, But between now and then, I want to wish everyone or whoever's celebrating a Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, Happy Holiday Season to all. We will talk again next week um, before the new year. And since the Niners are playing on a Monday, the new podcast or the next podcast will drop on a Tuesday or Wednesday, possibly. But until then, everyone, stay happy, stay healthy, stay safe, especially this holiday season. And we will talk soon. Take care.